So we'll be picking up this evening on page 842 of your Pew Bible. You just heard kind of the introduction to the conflict that we're going to be focusing on tonight, which is over what it really means to be unclean. And as we've been moving through the book of Mark, we have seen uncleanness show up in terms of uh, blood flows and demons and, and things like that. And we've seen that Jesus is very much on a mission to be the cleaner, to be cleanliness, to be the one who comes into contact with that which is blasphemous. And it cannot be so blasphemous as to undo who he is. And we're going to see him asserting that in one sense, even abrogating some of the Old Testament law uh, in the name of God, as God, uh, in the midst of this conflict here. But before that, we have a few verses from chapter 6 that we didn't finish up on Sunday, except in the first service I got ahead of myself and did go there. But verse 53 of chapter 6 is on page 842. It's in the right-hand column at the very top there. And we have this little bit that happens after Jesus and the disciples get across the water from where he's fed 5,000 people, he's healed the demoniac and all this stuff. They come across back again to the, um, to the other side, and Jesus is walking upon the water in the middle of the night one more time, demonstrating his power over chaos, his power over the abyss, his power over powers of darkness. And they arrive on that other side. It says here it's Genesaret. And if I'm not mistaken, and I, I must admit that as I've searched for this answer, not all the maps say the same things, and I'm not quite as sure, but I'm pretty confident here that Genesaret and the country of the Gedarenes is the same general region. And this is, actually, let's make use of our maps tonight. Um, these nice maps we've had in the pew for a couple of weeks now, we haven't used yet. Um, if you find the Sea of Galilee, which is this little circle right above the world word Israel, right? There's this big lake there called the Sea of Galilee, out of which the Jordan River flows. The northern side of that Sea of Galilee, even though it says the city of Dan is there, Dan was one of the first tribes to really fail as a tribe. And so that big word Phoenicia um, and the influence of Damascus from the north, even though this is more of an Old Testament power, Damascus, that whole region of paganism really influences and controls that northern side of the Sea of Galilee. So this area of the, the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes, uh, this is not a Jewish area. This is a pagan area. Remember, they were herding pigs here, right, which are unclean animals. And of course, the demoniac was here. And this is where the demoniac then wanted to leave. Do you remember this? Jesus keeps healing people, and everyone he heals, he says, be quiet. Don't tell anyone. Keep it a secret. With the exception of this demoniac, this man who had the legion in him up here in this foreign country who wants to go with Jesus back to Judea. He wants to be a disciple. And Jesus says, no. Instead, go tell everybody. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell them what God has done for you. And he leaves them there and, and goes across the water. Again, that all happened before. He's now back in that place where he had left this one guy to talk. And what happens, right? Verse 54. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. 
and as many as touched it were made well. So the explosion of popularity around Jesus continues to happen. And in one sense, this is like a high point. The kingdom of God is not only generating crowds amongst the Jewish people, but as prophesied, the, the Gentiles, the nations are now beginning to flock to him as well. And what could possibly stop this? What could get in the way of this man who has authority even over unclean spirits? And well, that's what's going to come next is religion. Religion is going to get in the way. Um, man's religion is going to get in the way. Um, first, though, just two thoughts that these are more just throwaway ideas, but um, they're, they're valuable maybe as they're valuable to you. Um, one is, as I, of course, hurt myself in the last day and a half, uh, hearing about Jesus' miraculous healing, I've been kind of thinking, you know, okay, so like, here I am and I'm a Christian. I know Jesus is probably going to let my, my thrown out back heal in a week or three, somewhere in there. I'll be fine. Um, but like, if there is a guy downtown, downtown Rockford, right? I got to get in the car, 15 minute drive. It's going to hurt to get there, but it saved me three weeks of pain. I guaranteed. Just got to touch the fringe of his cloak. I'll be fine. I mean, wouldn't you go? Right? <laughs> I mean, if you don't have to believe much, right? You would just go if you had heard this. And this is, we have to see, this is what a big event this is. Everyone is coming out. Anyone who's got a problem, like, well, why not? You know, this guy, guy will possibly heal me. And then there's this moment where it, this is really, really tender here. But, you know, they're touching the fringe of his garment. I'm going to get out of the pulpit here for a second and hobble over here a bit. So the, the Jewish man had to wear a certain clothing. Now, it doesn't look like what I have exactly, but it all had to be um, uh, ma made from certain materials, uh, put together in certain ways. And one of the things that they had was on their main shirt, there'd be a tassel that would hang off the front corner on both sides, and then they'd have two more off the back. So there's four tassels that hang down. And these tassels are interwoven of, I don't know the number, it's 30-some different threads and one blue thread and all these reasons. And It's all about Jesus, actually, at the end. It's all prophecies of Christ. Um, but again, as many as touched the fringe of his garment, they're reaching up to grab those tassels those tassels. And um, the other thing that's kind of cool, different text, different theology point, but those tassels, they don't call them tassels. The Hebrew word is wings. They're called wings. Uh, and so when the prophet says that he will arise with healing in his wings, now you can imagine him walking through the crowd and everyone's touching his wings and healing's just going everywhere, right? So that's the kind of, I don't know, cool prophecy fulfillment that is all throughout the gospels but often buried in the language a little bit, right? And, and particularly the Hebrew, um, I have to thank a Lutheran pastor and rabbi. He's no longer serving as rabbi uh, for that knowledge when he shared that uh, about the wings. Pretty cool. All right. So now into the big, the big chunk here, this bit about traditions. And um, let me just start before we get into this with a bit about what, what is tradition? What is it, right? Uh, there are many, many Christians who come to this passage, and they will think this passage means traditions are bad. Right? Traditions should be gotten rid of. And especially in a post-1960s American culture, where the only tradition we have is that traditions are bad, and I can do what I want, uh, this is amplified. Uh, it's amplified. But the point of this text here is not that traditions are bad. The question is, where do your traditions lie in relationship to the Word of God? Huh? What happens when you have a tradition that you think is good and that it is in conflict with 
what the scriptures actually say, which one gets to win. And what's happening in Jesus' time is that it is the traditions that are winning to the point where they are making void the word of God. They are taking the word of God away from the people, from the culture. And we could probably say that a similar thing is occurring in our day and age. And and I'll maybe talk about that um, a little bit here in a moment. As we look at the example that Jesus gives, which will be the most complicated part of the text, he's going to focus on what a family is. What what does the word of God say that a family is? And this is the very thing that the Pharisees will destroy. And I think you know full well, this is the very thing under assault uh, in our modern age as well, is, is the power of the family, the centrality of the family. But again, traditions themselves, what's a tradition? A tradition is something you do regularly, habitually, uh, because, I don't know, it's what you do, right? You do it over and over again. Um, I'm grateful that in, in my house, when I was little, my parents taught me the tradition of brushing my teeth before bed. And I have faithfully carried out that tradition most of my life. There's been a few days when I forget, Vaughn, our dentist, yeah, he be happy for me there. Um, I've carried that out most of my life. That's a good tradition, right? So the reason I share that is just to show how a tradition doesn't have to be the organ, right? Uh, it doesn't have to be uh, Thanksgiving dinner. It can be something as simple as anything you do repeatedly. And the question is not whether you do things repeatedly and they're good or whether you pass on good things to your children. The question is, when you are doing things you think are good, are they in fact evil and voiding the word of God? And are you unrepentant of that when the word of God comes to you? Uh, And that's, again, what we're going to wrestle with here uh, through the Pharisees a little bit. And then maybe, maybe ask the question about ourselves at St. Paul. But uh, we'll we'll get there, I hope. All right. So, uh, Verse 1 of chapter 7, when the Pharisees gathered to him, right, conflict comes. With some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And again, just everyone's getting healed of every disease they ever had. They're like, you don't wash your hands right. Which, to us Americans, should sound bizarre and unreasonable. For them, there's a little more of a reason behind this. And I, I do hope, just as you, I hope you brush your teeth with regularity. You should floss as well, by the way. Um, I, I hope that you also wash your hands before, before you prepare food uh, and that you wash your hands before you eat food. This is just good practice. Uh, I learned somewhere, of course, who knows with the internet what you know, but I learned that a vast majority of the health improvements in American health come not from the medical industry, but from simply uh, washing our hands. That that change in society made such a difference in the way that we're able to remain healthy. Um, And so, of course, we as Americans are like, okay, wash your hands before you eat. What you got to understand, though, is that none of the reasons we wash our hands are the reasons they're washing their hands. None of them. For them, this is entirely a spiritual practice. This has everything to do with like washing the demon dirt off before you go inside from where you were out, where the demons were, right? So I go down to downtown Rockford and I see people who look a little funny. They act a little funny. They maybe scream and shout, who knows, but I got too close. It might've rubbed off. Got to wash my hands. Now this practice, which is a tradition of theirs, is trying to hold on to an understanding that their meal, their fellowship, their table, and their temple is in fact clean, and that they can become spiritually dirty by over-engaging with the world around them. 
The problem is they have mistaken the outside for the inside. And that's going to be the driving point that Jesus has here. Is the issue the food or is the issue the heart? And that, that's what Jesus is going to drive at. Now, it does explain here the traditions that they have. The Pharisees, all the Jews, verse 3, do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Right. So uh, they were clean freaks. But this is, again, a religious and or spiritual think juju and voodoo approach. Almost they're they're superstitious about the way that they clean with this little technical term traditions of the elders that doesn't just mean traditions the traditions of the elders is a specific set of jewish rabbinic laws that at the time they all believed were given to moses on mount sinai so when moses is on mount sinai he gets two things according to this tradition he gets first the written torah which includes the ten commandments on the stone tablets and the book of the law, which will be covered with blood at the foot of the mountain and then put in the Ark of the Covenant. So he gets that. But there's another story that happens where he and 70 of the elders of Israel go up and they sit in the presence of God and they eat and they come back. And that's all the text said. But 70 elders of Israel went up. And the story goes that while they were there, they received more truth than was in Torah. And that more truth is the tradition of the elders that has been passed down through the rabbis all the way, even probably some to today. Now, this is not true, okay? This is just what they believed. They believed that the elders on Mount Sinai had extra word of God that they kept quietly, orally, not written down. And they held to that with such strength again that Jesus is going to say, you missed the fourth commandment. And <laughs> you know, really got off the wall on, on this one here. He'll, he'll come to that in just a moment. So verse five, though, first they ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to this? There it is. Tradition of the elders, right? They mean the Bible. They just mean the Bible that isn't written down. The Bible they keep in their heads, right? The Bible that the rabbis teach, but, but no one else has written down. Why don't you do that, Jesus? Uh, and he said to them, <laughs> God, I love, he, he could he could sugarcoat this he could sugarcoat this and he doesn't right uh well did isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites i mean it doesn't even hold back he doesn't try to come around and, and win him over he just says you're so wrong you're so off the wall that from of old the prophets have said you're wrong that everyone has known you're wrong well did they speak of you two-faced people as they said now here's the quote this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So I think the most important thing to pull out of there, and we could go back and look in Isaiah, there's much to gain from that. Um, but the idea that it is possible to visibly look like, act like, talk like you love God and hate God. It's possible to say, I worship Jesus with all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind, but your, your heart is far from him. Uh, and how would you know this? Well, the answer is going to be, does the word of God true or not? 
right? When the word of God comes to you and says something you disagree with, do you humble yourself before it, strive to believe it, understand it, or do you remove it, replace it with your own thoughts, right? That's the very thing that's going on here. And of course, we know we're good Lutherans. Original sin is real. We all are far from God in our hearts by nature. But, but Jesus isn't talking about by nature here. He's not talking about what you're born with. He's talking about people who are claiming to have repented and believed the gospel and yet can't stand him, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, well, did Isaiah call you hypocrites if you think you love God, but you don't like Jesus? Uh, uh, that's really an issue. And now here's where it's going to get a little bit convoluted. So, so bear with me as Jesus makes his argument about how they're getting rid of the fourth commandment. And frankly, we just don't have enough text to understand it, I think. But uh, verse eight, you leave the commandment of God, hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. That's what he's gonna talk about next, this particular example, right? And he says, Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So, so there's your word of God. Honor your father and your mother is the first step. Uh, it is to recognize that authority is from God. It is good for you. Even when you disagree with it, it is right and neat to generally follow that authority as much as possible, especially within the home, the place where that authority has control. Um, but he takes that to another level by including the punishment for disobedience to parents, which in ancient Israel was, was death. And while we can debate how much the Israelites ever really kept any of their laws, it's, it's a real question. Like the year of Jubilee, did they ever do it? We don't know. Maybe not, right? Seven years in, they're already failing. Um, we could debate that point. Uh, the bigger issue here is how he is elevating the severity of what God thinks about this commandment. God doesn't just say, honor your father and mother. He says, if you don't, there's a good chance you're going to be destroyed. Uh, remember how the rest of the fourth commandment goes. It's not in our small catechism. Honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. So, I mean, this is just reasonable. When all authorities are in upheaval and no one's obeying anyone or following anyone, what happens? Well, conflict, violence, death, struggle, destruction, all these things. Uh, you know, we have a, a member who... Uh, He's an older gentleman. Uh, he lived in Germany. Some of you will know him and, and ended up fleeing at a certain point during World War II with his family as a child. And one of the things uh, he'll say about that is one thing I know is that bad government is better than no government. Because when there's no government, everyone does whatever they want. Right? When bad government, at least we're all still afraid. So in any case, he ups the level here. This fourth commandment isn't just an idea. It is, in fact, built into the reality of our existence together as humanity, as people. And yet, they have gotten rid of entirely. And the way they do this, a fine way, he says, verse 11, you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you have would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. 
So the many says things you do, there are multiple examples of this or multiple things he's complaining about, but this is the one he wants us to focus on. And yet it's one that is kind of weird. It's kind of weird. What's Corban? I got to start there. Uh, it, it, the word means sacrifice. And it's a special kind of gift that you could give to the temple by declaring this thing to be a sacrificial offering. And if I'm understanding this right, effectively what they did was they created a loophole in the law of inheritance and care so that whereas an older family member, if they can't care for themselves, has to be cared by the younger family member within the, the Hebrew society, but you could maybe make a plea that you don't have the money to help them because you already wrote it off on your taxes to the temple as Corbin. Does that make sense? I kind of mixed my metaphors there, but trying to show how if they gave this gift as Corbin, they could say, oh, this other money I have, I can't help you with that because that's for this. And, and the money I would have given to you, I, I, I gave it to God. And so I can't help you. I'm sorry. It, uh, it's, it's better for my bottom line this way. You know, again, it's, it's, it's a little like the, the tax uh, benefits from giving, something like that. Um, and the point is not that they're getting a tax benefit or anything like that. The point is that by doing this, they're, they're saying, yeah, my dad's sick and dying, whatever, right? Um, or something unto that, that they're being taught that respect for parents is not primary in terms of the civilization's care for its future. Let me repeat that. I don't mean that every individual's personal respect for every parent, good or bad, ultimately is the end or beginning of all civilizations. But any civilization that does not respect its elders is going to crash. It can't learn by definition. It can't learn. It disrespects what comes from before, right? And so there is no tradition. There's only destruction there. This is, in fact, what is going to happen to Jerusalem. They will not last. Uh, and Jesus is very much there to tell them that. Again, uh, if that all was a bit crunchy, I understand. Uh, the argument Jesus makes is a, is a touch crunchy. The emphasis, though, is going to be on now again that outside versus inside thing. So verse 14, he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And don't miss, again, he just got asked by his great enemies in front of all these crowds why he's doing what he's doing. And not only says to them, you're a bunch of hypocrites, he goes to the crowd and starts teaching that everything they say is wrong. <laughs> he just publicly starts decrying their position. Right. Everybody, let it be very clear to you that what you eat is not religious. What you eat is not religious. And if you're worried about the Lord's Supper, don't be right. That's not what he's talking about. Uh, what he means is that he'll explain it here in a moment. Actually, let's let him do it. Verse 17. When he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Uh, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. All right. So I don't want to belabor the point. 
we're, we're modern people. I think you know how your mouth, your stomach, and, and the processes of your body food intake works. Um, uh, nonetheless, I, I, I think it's not – how do I say this? Um, I have a particularly interesting take on nutrition myself. I, I live a little bit of a distinct nutritious life. And what's so amazing to me is how many people think I'm religious about it. Like if, if I say, oh, I don't eat that or I don't eat this, what happens is people get guilty. They feel guilty. They feel accused. They, they will then begin to defend and justify. And so my suggestion here is that we're all very religious about what we eat, whether we know it or not. We have a tendency to put more value in what we manage to, again, produce, how I can look, what I dress like, what goes into my mouth. What are these things again? These are external things. They're outside of us. I'm deeply concerned about my worldly value and how the world will assess me. Let me suggest to you the whole world's living that way just about all the time. And when you do hear people talking about things like, say, veganism, which is the idea that it is morally wrong to eat animals, morally wrong. That's a religious statement. It's not an opinion. It's a religious statement. And so what Jesus is saying is that's all, it's all misguided. If you're going to go get religious about your tofu and, and your beef, you got a problem here. Rather, what should you get religious about? Here, here's the rest of the, the section now, right? He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And then there's this list that's very like the ones you'll get, say, in St. Paul. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. External versus internal. The whole thrust of this gospel, right? Jesus is on the attack against the darkness. And the darkness does not understand and continues to fight back. And what he's beginning to expose is that darkness isn't just out there somewhere far away. The darkness is in the heart of mankind himself. And every single one of us has this list of things inside of us. And you can eat as healthy as you want. You can do all the stretching and yoga you can imagine. You can follow all the rules, tit for tat, everywhere. You can do everything just like the rabbis or the imams say. And at the end of the day, out of the heart of man will come evil thoughts, sexual hungers, the evil eye of covetousness, folly and foolishness and wickedness. And the solution to that is not that somehow I'm going to become capable of not being those things by nature. The real issue is, is there somebody else who's capable of saving me from these things? And the guy who's talking about it, he's the one. He's right there in the midst of crowds. You just got to get up to the sleeve of his shirt and you're healed. Huh? And yet what they want to do again, they want to say you're not clean, you don't eat right. And he's like, ah, I know what clean is. and You're not clean but I'm here to clean you. And the text, he doesn't say to the Pharisees, I'm here to clean you, but you, Christian, right, know this. That's what he's here to do. He's here to take the inner hypocrisy of your heart, 
to crush it beneath the word he says that is true so that you're brought to repentance. When you know you haven't done what you're supposed to do, you acknowledge it, you admit it, you say, Jesus, you're my God, have mercy. And again, to see that the man with healing in his wings, the one who walks upon the sea, the one who casts out demons with the word, he's the very one who has baptized you, who holds you in the palm of his hand, and who intends to strengthen your faith from this day forth unto the day of his everlasting return. No matter who you are, as we'll see Sunday as we get to this Syrophoenician woman who has uh, no reason to receive anything from Jesus, and yet, uh, as we'll see, when you go to Jesus for mercy, Jesus always says, yes, in the name of Jesus. Amen.